this great big world out there of people teaching online and offline in community that don't have any of the training or expertise that y'all do, that don't necessarily have any background in teaching or in pedagogy and for real making bank. And so why would we not want to encourage those markets to invoke the capitalist parlance, those spaces to be infused with educators that know how to educate and that are subject area experts? Welcome to another episode of Academics Mean Business. This is your host, Dr. Lindsay Padilla. You are going to love my guest today. Unjali Nath Upadhyay is a amazing academic who has started her own school. How cool is that? So she actually left her PhD with a terminal master's, and we get into a little bit about that, but she was using grad school in a very strategic way. She knew she wanted to have an impact on society, was seeking smarter spaces, that was the language she used in the interview, for herself in order to make a change. And she basically found out that there are possibilities outside of academia, that there were options. And so following along the ideas of the Freedom School movement and, of course, feminist consciousness movement, she was looking to create critical pedagogy outside of the institution. And her family came from a lineage of educators and community. And so she started to realize that, hey, maybe the institution wasn't the path to make the social change she wanted to make, that she actually wanted to get to the real work. What could she do with her skill set that she learned in grad school to use and help people engage in the civic process? So she said, I'm going to have to build it myself. Um, so this episode really talks about how she was able to take something that we would kind of argue is you know, nonprofit, right? Not for profit doing community education. But what she did was she turned it into something that um, was an alternative way of getting independent funding to create her school. So she has a series of courses that are 100% donation-based. And we do the math on the episode, and we basically find out that she's making about what she would be making as an adjunct, teaching a few sections. So I really love this episode because it has such a different perspective on what it means to start a business and how we can make an impact and what resources like money does for us. And that maybe we don't have to settle for doing not-for-profit work, but we can do work in our communities and be paid for it and be able to use those resources to give back and to sustain ourselves. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Please, please, please connect with her on social media because I feel like this conversation is going to continue past this episode. Enjoy. All right. Welcome. I'm so excited to welcome my guest today, who I met through another podcast guest, Amy Walsh, which we'll definitely drop in the notes below. But we're going to welcome today Unjali Nath Upadhyay. Hi. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yay. And I, so we have video chat going right now. And I was really excited because I've been practicing her last name. I was just like a little kid, like, did I do it okay? I think I did. I think I did okay. I messed up a little bit at the end, but wasn't too bad. 
<laughs> we're all still learning, right? It's an important we're lesson for educators. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the amount of practice that it takes, like I wrote out phonetically all of that. And then the anxiousness of starting is like, oh no, mm-hmm. it's all mm-hmm. okay. Yay. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited to have you on. You're the first person I've ever seen put a uh, master squared in there. <laughs> I'm not right. saying broad stroke that I've never, I've never <laughs> met someone who doesn't have two masters or whatever, or had someone on this podcast, but have you <laughs> put that in the bio? That is super. Right. Cool. Right. Yeah. If that was not reason enough to leave the PhD program, just to get those two MAs, just to be able like, to do that. had I known that I would have ducked out early, like that, that could have been what was on my business cards for the rest of my life. Sign me up. <laughs> right. I love it. I love it. Very Thank cool. You. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, those two degrees, the path of academia, how it, how it, you know, unfolded for you, um, what you studied, what your research was in, just take some time to tell us a little bit about that story. For sure. So my undergrad was at Cal State Fullerton. I was double majoring in women's studies and political science and minored in philosophy Uh, And then had imagined towards the end of undergrad, I was going to go into a PhD program. And a lot of the sort of conventional wisdom at the time for folks that do work in ethnic studies, women's studies, indigenous studies, was at that point in time, again, quote, to get a discipline, end quote. So I imagined if I'm going to have to go the route of political science or philosophy for the PhD, you can better believe I'm going to be in as unapologetically of liberatory spaces as possible between now and then in a master's, right? Uh, So I did a master's degree in women's studies at the oldest women's studies department in the country, so at San Diego State, and then afterwards uh, started a PhD in political science at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, Mm -hmm. in part because they have the only indigenous politics specialization in the entire United States. Really? Uh, Yeah. And so part of what that means is you can actually study with all indigenous professors, not just a bunch of in the field of, yeah, poli-sci, overwhelmingly white men, Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly assigning Eurocentric and cishetero patriarchal curricula, um, but instead actually taking seriously wisdom traditions and intellectual traditions and canons from the so-called global South, right? Which is Mm -hmm. uh, something that is so astoundingly rare in the field of political science today, um, to this day in the U.S., let alone across the academy more broadly. Uh, And so I knew that that was the best fit in the realm of poli-sci in the U.S. to actually increase the likelihood you could do smarter work because you've actually expanded the lit review, not just to the same sort of echo chamber. (laughs) The whole whole ocean is in front of you, yeah, for sure. Still talking about Socrates? Like, no one else's ancestors have intellectual traditions? Like, come on now, really? Like, we can be smarter than that. I've got faith in y'all, right? Uh, That's good. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was uh, what took me to Hawaii. And I also did a grad certificate there in international cultural studies, which mm. actually they also have the only cultural studies program in the entire territorial U.S. that is explicitly international, as in, again, it's not just the same old scholars, typically Mm -hmm. from Western Europe, principally the U.K. and the U.S. and Canada, but you're actually expanding 
the lit review that we're in conversation with, right, the textual communities that we're in conversation with to expand out to the intelligence throughout the entire planet. Again, not just the same old, same old, that's mm. very conventional in the academic industrial complex in the U.S. still, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, I did those couple of things at Hawaii and decided to leave the PhD program. So with the terminal MA, that second MA, uh, but so far as uh, academic history goes, I have mostly been based in those institutions and then worked for about a year at California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, um, which is a small private, mostly graduate level institution. Um, before entirely leaving the academic industrial complex. Yes. Um, and with, can we talk a little bit about your decision to leave the mm -hmm. PhD program? It's definitely a theme on the podcast. Not everyone that I've interviewed has has um, done that, uh, has finished. And, and there was a lot of things that came up, mental health issues, um, faculty members and people in the program that were causing stress, stressful environment, like lots of different reasons. Also then deciding to like, oh, maybe this isn't the path. And I'm wondering what mm -hmm. uh, your, your story looks like from that angle. Sure. Uh, I mean, for sure, there was the gatekeeping, the censorship. Um, it's an oppressive institution. So whether it's the labor exploitation as educators, whether it's the sexual harassment, the colonialism, the racism, that was all there to be sure. Just add it to the list, whichever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah just one. par yeah. for the course, right? Nothing mm -hmm. like a healthy work environment. And so those were all forces to be reckoned with for sure. Um, frankly, though, for me, what was most untenable was... Uh, it's just so, you know, to back up a little bit and to just name the context that we're in, this is right, an ecocidal context. This is a context of climate catastrophe that we're in on planet Earth these mm -hmm. days, right? Um, let alone encroaching fascism and or economic collapse. And so my entry point into academia and grad school um, was always strategic. I was never looking for a mm -hmm. home in that toxic place. And to me, it's really important to name that because a lot of people are seeking, right, mm. the fulfillment of certain needs or wants or desires sure. within that institution that, yeah. I, you know, we better believe, I promise, that institution never pretended to care about to begin with, right? No. So nothing mm -hmm. like having, especially for activists, for organizers, that clarity when we're choosing to engage in dominant institutions about why we're really there mm -hmm. so we can leverage our limited time and energy and resources as intentionally as possible. So uh, when I went in, it wasn't like, oh, I think that to be a professor would be the absolute mm. highest manifestation of my capacity as a living being. I didn't have that kind of romanticism. Um, mm -hmm. It was very much more so, let's be real about the sort of legitimacy that's imbued within credentials within the society, particularly for those of us that are either oppressed intersectionally based on multiple aspects of our identities. So just keeping it real that we're more likely to be taken seriously in some spaces if we have done that work and mm. uh, wanting to make the most of the possibility for learning and for growth with humility that did exist within these super specific programs um, that I highly curated a journey for myself through. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a little bit about why I was there, right? So then to be able to situate my decision to leave, 
Uh, it was in part around, just to be totally truthful, the lack of intelligence in the spaces. Mm. Um, and so, you know, for someone, again, that does understand part of my role in this moment and time to be supporting our collective liberation, I don't have time to play games with coddling mediocrity, right? The fragility of, again, white supremacist knowledge traditions that act like if you're not even fluent in the languages that you're doing research in, you actually have something meaningful yeah. to say, yeah. right? Who's got yeah. time for those games when our planet is on mm. fire, right? Mm. Um, and so seeking smarter spaces because the work that we need to do in the world merits that, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that the institution doesn't hold isn't the only place that those spaces exist. I mean, that's so, right. yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's part of the dominant illusion that maintains um, that emperor is allegedly having clothes on, right? Um, that the academy supposedly monopolizes intelligence, <laughs> which of course mm-hmm. a whole lot of people outside of that echo chamber, that industry are like, oh God, that's cute slash embarrassing slash yeah. nothing is cute about that arrogance, <laughs> right? Uh, And so they think that, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, that, um, again, consistent with so many um, other industries where if someone is just really rooted in those circles and maybe they don't know what possibilities exist out of the spaces that they've just Mm -hmm. been so deeply rooted in, uh, frankly, it's like an abusive relationship. You just mm-hmm. don't know that you have other options. And so if you think that's the only game in town, of course, it might be more seductive slash you might feel more pressure, right? To not euphemize to stay mm-hmm. there. Uh, and yet, um, for me and for a lot of other folks that have entered into academia, knowing that we have had other options, knowing that, you know, the most incredible texts I've ever read are usually the ones, whether it's, you know, Franz, Fanon's, Wretched of the Earth or Black Skin, White Masks, that was rejected as a dissertation. (laughs) You know, having clarity in terms of the questions related to legitimacy um, Mm. about who does and doesn't actually have access to knowledge and wisdom and intelligence, right? Yep. Yep. And they're, and left, right, and center, they're blocking that access in so many mm-hmm. ways. I remember mm-hmm. I had a moment when in doing my dissertation where I was like, wait, I just can't access this article, but you also expect me to, to, to totally get the breadth of knowledge and, and mm-hmm. reference it. And, but it costs money. It's paywalled. Like that blew my mm-hmm. mind. Um, but then, you know, how that impacts actually what is going on through all layers of education. It's not just the dissertator, the, the PhD student who's writing. Um, I mean, it's that's like just a symptom of a, a way larger issue about where knowledge is getting blocked and where mm-hmm. um, where there's access. Yep. You can say that again, right? And it's one thing, say, if we are in an industry where perhaps the commodity that we're buying and selling is sneakers and or roofing, mm. but if knowledge is the commodity mm. that is being bought and sold, right, in the super neoliberal, right, corporatized environment, that's not even close to neutral. That's not innocuous. No. That's actually <laughs> yeah. tremendously oppressive and unjust, right? Mm-hmm. And so for those of us that know some of our capacity and our potential, why not innovate alternatives? right? As opposed to just sort of staying stagnant in a system that we know is unjust, that we know is cost prohibitive, uh, and that many of us actually aren't seeking to diversify or inclusion into when we could be creating more just, more Mm -hmm. life-affirming, more intelligent, more unapologetically liberatory spaces. Uh, So again, for me, it was I knew that I had options 
particularly mm. as an activist that didn't like so many folks that go into academia, then all of a sudden you might mostly be hanging out with academics. You might not even remember the communities that either mm. you were a part of or you could be a part of. But because I had those other, you know, deep and enduring and beautiful and uh, intellectually rigorous spaces, you know, it is really important to name then some of the hustle isn't exactly as effective, right? Because again, mm. you just know that you have alternatives and options. And if we can't see them in front of us, believing that you're capable, if we're the intellectuals, <laughs> if we're the ones with the credentials, let's create right. the alternatives, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's what's been your work since, right? So if you could give us a little bit about making that transition and what some of your first moves were. I know the academy never felt safe to you. Um, and, you know, I personally made choices for certain things of stability, but also it wasn't, it isn't safe. It is not a safe place, even though it is positioned as. So I would like to hear like what, um, what kind of your first moves were as you set out to create this alternative um, space that you knew you could create. Right. So, you know, for over a dozen years now, one of the histories that has been most inspiring to me is that of certainly the Freedom School movement in mm -hmm. the civil rights struggle in the U.S. and then also the feminist consciousness raising paradigm um, that came out of what some folks sort of historicize as the second wave of the feminist mm -hmm. movement in the U.S. But we could talk about that in different ways for sure. Uh, and so taking it back and just honoring that lineage where due mm. um, prior to, say, uh, delving into some sort of entrepreneurial spaces, right, with not just a grain of salt, but a bag of salt over my shoulder, <laughs> right? Yeah. I have always been incredibly honored to learn from folks doing critical pedagogy and popular education off of university campuses, right? In ways mm -hmm. that are accessible, both financially, culturally, on all of the fronts, and again, unapologetically at the service of emancipation, of supporting, mm -hmm. right, the, right, pulling the weeds of injustice and planting seeds that are life-affirming for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and those movements, I wasn't actually alive during those movements. And so it's just been so incredibly inspiring um, since I was in undergrad to learn about these teachers that devoted their lives to showing up for the folks that were actually down to learn um, and weren't faking some kind of objectivity or neutrality that we know is an impossibility, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. we're actually like, no, we actually care about, you know, children having food. We're not afraid of being perceived by someone that's got, you know, taken a little bit too much of the postmodernist or post-structuralist Kool-Aid and thinks that that's embarrassingly subjective. <laughs> like, yeah. I'll go there. Yeah. I'm okay. Like, I'll own yeah. that. You know, like, I have values and I'm totally mm -hmm. down to embody them. We are indeed all the time anyways, even if we're not aware of that, right? Uh, and so both from those lineages that have inspired me my entire life um, in this place and then also taking it back ancestrally, um, half of my family on my father's side, we have been educators in community for over a millennia. Uh, wow. And so, yeah, I mean, following in the family footsteps, those were always anchors for me before, say, some colleagues were like, hey, you'd make a great professor. You should do mm -hmm. that. Right. So again, mm -hmm. just honoring, you know, at the outset, what options were always there that were so deeply invigorating mm. 
um, before, you know, I considered strategically dabbling in some really fraught and vexed and unjust institutions like academia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't like when I left campus, I was just like, what am I going to do? There's this vast uh-huh. world. I have no, yeah. I don't understand. This is the unknown. Um, it was more so like, thank the goddess, I can get to the real work because I have mm. right freed up the time and the space right? Pushing aside the diversions and the distractions to Mm -hmm. actually connect with the folks that are down to do the thing, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. That to me right there is the options piece is something. And I I remember when your um, bio came through too, or or maybe it was an an email you had written to me saying that you wanted to be on the podcast. You had said, you know, I I also want to show social scientists what's possible outside of, of going all the way and being a professor mm-hmm. or whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I wonder if you could speak more to how, how showing options to social scientists, like what is, is, is it embodying those options and showing them like this, you know, sharing your story about it? Is it, what is, are there other ways is, that your work is doing to connect with people in that sense? But I think that's great because a lot of the people I've had on my show there's a lot of therapists, there's a lot of psychologists, but you know, it, it is, I think for social scientists, it is a little bit harder to maybe venture out or see what's possible that's outside of the academy. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, just taking it back again to the context that we're in right now. So looking mm-hmm. at, I mean, of course, especially after the most recent presidential election in the U.S., we know that there is this particular Mm. opportunity for Mm. folks like political scientists, for example, that have devoted years to understanding how power operates Mm. to be instrumental in actually making an immediate, tangible, concrete impact in our Mm. communities, whether it's mobilizing folks, whether it's activating folks, whether it is supporting people practicing a sort of resurgent culture of public intellectualism where we can Mm. actually disagree and have smart conversations. Who would have thought, right? So novel. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uncanny. Like I read about that in a history book once. Like that Mm -hmm. could be a thing. We could do that, right? Uh, Let alone just helping people understand how we got to this moment in time that we're in. Um, Because Mm. we weren't all confused. You know, I mean, even it's just so... Um, astoundingly insulting, frankly, when you see these talking heads and pundits on the corporate media that are like, like white supremacy is still a thing in the US? Like Mm -hmm. sexism is still real? Like who would have thought? This is so weird. Um, That really just demonstrates the intersecting ignorances that are within their knowledge set or lack thereof, their training so far or lack thereof, their education so far or lack thereof, Mm -hmm. that we can remedy. It doesn't have to be Mm -hmm. like this, right? Mm -hmm. And so that I really want to underscore that context because then the sort of um, gap that we're capable of bridging becomes so much more apparent, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, right? There are so many folks, whether it's, you know, having conflicts in their families or their workplaces or other social settings politically because people just um, have been saturated in so many horrific examples of, right, the sort of, you know, defamation and character assassination and, you know, just creating straw men or straw people and tearing them down. And some folks really not knowing that 
there are alternatives that mm. we can engage in, right? Dialogue, debate, heated, passionate, challenging, mm. smart conversations, the kind that are necessary today. Um, and some of us are equipped to do that, uh, mm-hmm. that otherwise might be, you know, stuck in this sort of casualized, feminized, right, adjunct situation, mm. not even able to pay their bills um, that, you know, also don't need to be struggling because they have a skill set that could be so mm. useful to so many people, could provide such solace and could provide support for so many of our communities to actually engage the civic process more fully right now. Um, and so that's a little bit of what I'm talking about, right, when I speak to um, a real invitation for folks that are still potentially struggling in the academy, mm. or maybe they're just feeling like there is something else they want to experiment with, or perhaps it's not the best fit for them for whatever personal reason, let alone just not wanting to give their brilliance and their life to an oppressive institution, um, to let them know it doesn't have to be like this. You've got options. Uh, and so, yeah, within a freedom school that I founded within the past three years, there's definitely do a lot of work with folks on um, supporting the healing of their imagination around all of that. Ah, mm. oh, there's an intersection with Amy Walsh. <laughs> mm, right? Yeah. We can visualize it to be sure. Mm-hmm. We can wordsmith mm-hmm. it. We need to do that healing work in all of the spaces. Right? Yes. So true. Um, so I love this. So this invitation to people with this skill set, I think that is definitely what this show is about. So I'm curious, as you left, where were you looking to make an income and how did that translate into this work that you created? And tell me about the beginning of Freedom School. Was that where you initially went to um, provide for yourself and family and whoever? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, it was. And I want to say, because it's important to me that we honor, and this is something I really appreciate that you do on the show, mm-hmm. letting folks know it's not necessarily going to be easy. It does yeah. take a lot of work and time and energy and preparation and potentially soul searching to Mm. build alternatives for ourselves where we may not have previously seen them. So I was able to actually uh, take the risk of jumping directly from academia into growing Liberation Spring, this grassroots freedom school full time. And I also want to name that was a huge risk on a number Mm. of fronts, certainly financially as well, professionally, Uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of hope and the like. And so I share that um, in lieu of a sort of, you know, romanticized or candy-coated story about this um, deft segue, because in the moment, it's not like you know that everything is going to work out. And so I really want to honor um, some of what the embodied sort of experience is of being in those moments so that then mm-hmm. say if a listener right now might be at that similar threshold um, or in this sort of liminal space uh, on their own in the sort of transition that they might be dreaming of making, um, you know, I want folks to know, you know, it's not like I had a ton of savings or any, mm-hmm. it's not like I had, you know, some kind of guarantee of financial security on this front, um, it was a risk, just like a Mm -hmm. lot of things in life are a risk, just like, right, grad school is a risk, a new job is a risk. People talk about enterprise being all about risk-taking. And so, again, I don't want to revisionistically 
look back in time and be like, oh yeah, I totally had all of this together because right, we create those paths through moving through them. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just really want to underscore that there was a whole lot of prayer, of journaling, of conversations with people, of getting super cozy with the unknown at Mm. every stage of the process. So certainly when we're talking about the beginning, that was real and it's still real, right? As we grow Mm -hmm. and evolve in other areas. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I love that. We create those paths uh, um, as we move through them. And I I think I, my most recent interview that I had right before yours was all about risk and vulnerability. Um, a therapist who did work in vulnerability 20, 30 years ago before Brene Brown was doing that work. And it's, yeah, it's interesting to see how much it shows up in a different way in entrepreneurship than it does in the academy. But it's those exchanges and those sacrifices and those abuses, internal, external, I mean, all around, right? Like we tend to be our own, our own worst abuser in so many ways. Um, And that really showed up for me when I went out on my own, because that risk and that fear that you're pushing against daily to take a step somewhere where it you can't see, you don't know where it's going. I mean, that is deep work. And so um, I love that you shared too, how you got through that, like journaling, prayer, you know, that kind of... um, being with ourselves, I think, is kind of the key when you're when you're venturing out onto something that you don't know what the end. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and so you know, I had taught um, another thing just to share in terms of background, sure, because then um, again, for folks who might be listening that might be curious about seeding a new mm-hmm. project, to be able to do that really intentionally and to be able to you know set yourself up for success, so to speak. Uh, I had been doing community education on the side while paying my bills within academic institutions Mm -hmm. for over a dozen years, right? So there were already community members that had been coming at me for years saying, when are you going to you know, bring back those things from graduate school, the ones that are worthwhile and make it plain for us so then we can benefit collectively from your taking the time and energy to go into those spaces um, to be able to glean what might be beneficial for the purposes of our work trying to create a more free mm-hmm. world. Uh, and so I already, again, literally had, you know, in the sort of entrepreneurial parlance, this could be an email list, right? right? Community, community that networks, wanted to... <laughs> bridging mm-hmm. the gaps. And I think, that, I think that's <laughs> yeah. important so for you to say, because I wrote down, yeah, yeah, your community was right. asking for you to create, which yep. is a beautiful place to exactly. be in, because then you know who you're serving, mm-hmm. why you're serving them. So it mm-hmm. was Mm -hmm. risky, Mm -hmm. but you, you have been building Mm -hmm. that for a while. So I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, you know, I talk with people about the idea of even in this entrepreneurial space, although I don't identify ontologically or in any other ways. Which we can talk about because actually we haven't had a (laughs) conversation about that yet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. No, for sure. Uh, But even uh, in the entrepreneurial realm, I identify that, frankly, as a faith-based practice, um, which a lot of, say, atheists might not be into, agnostics might not be into. But however you understand um, that process to riff off of some folks that are the founders of Turtle Tank, this um, collective coaching program for radical entrepreneurs, um, co-creation with the mystery or with the unknown. Um, so to really respect that paradigm mm-hmm. that they're sharing with folks doing really important work in the world, 
we're, whether we're entrepreneurs, whatever circle it is we're moving through in the world, if we're being humble, we know it's not all about our individual egoic agency, right? And so um, that's a gift that'll keep on giving, right? Really nourishing and cultivating our relationship with the unknown in any of those realms. And so I mm. also just want to name that for me, it was an incredible opportunity um, to get even cozier with the unknown um, and to mm-hmm. really practice, you can call it faith, you can find a synonym that, you know, for folks that might not be comfortable with that, um, more so than I had in other realms in my life. Yeah, it's the it's the trust. When I think of the word faith, I like trust, the word trust comes up for me and that trust mm-hmm. in yourself, the trust in others, the trust in the universe, which is another one that we could like, the trust that that there is enough, like all of these things that we're fighting against the scarcity mindset, like the scarcity complex, that there's not enough for everyone in the world, um, all things, all belief systems that we've all internalized that then show up um, on in just, in just a, I don't even, it's a stronger way when you're trying to run a business and like, you know, and make an impact. Um, so I, I would like to talk with you a little bit about the, how you identify with, and the word entrepreneur is a word we use on the show a lot. And it's, you know, it's come up in like various ways, but I don't think we've actually really centered it and had a conversation around it. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, even too, also this online space, as you create this freedom school, you know, what did it look like moving it online? What, what were some choices you were making around that? Because I know there's a lot tied to that too, that we haven't discussed as well. So there's a lot in that, con- in that question, but so, those sure. are things I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, no, so much. Absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, I share that piece about the unknown, about trust, whether it's in the realm of enterprise or academia or life in general, um, mm-hmm. because again, to me, uh, I want to invite folks to consider that idea that it's not if, but how, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a purpose in life, it's not if you're going to embody your purpose, it's how you're going to embody your purpose. Right. Mm. Um, And so that Mm -hmm. for me, then all of a sudden that really shifts the paradigm or it shifts our framework from, you know, because if you're hiding from your purpose because you're afraid, what kind of life is that the last time I checked? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's uh, to me personally, in terms of the life that I'm committed to trying to have, aspiring to have on the daily. Um, I'm not trying to hide from things that are intimidating. Mm. And as, you know, an unapologetic nerd for 35 years and then some, 34 <laughs> years and then some, like that's a learning opportunity, right? <laughs> that's exciting, you know? I'm yeah. so honored to be alive for another mm. day to learn a new thing. That's awesome, right? Uh, and so for me, that again, as I was getting going was part of my approach Um, And then I really want to, so again, give credit where due to the community members that had been consistently um, asking, hey, when are you going to, you know, create something for us so we don't just have to crash the course that you're teaching on campus. We may let us sit in, but also, you know, and share assignments that are more relevant, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, I want to honor that initial support and I should share that. So for that first year, 
Um, it was really just me sort of doing a lot of the kind of community educational work that I've done for the past dozen years on the side, whether it's in a consciousness raising group or whether it was, you know, a weekly ongoing documentary night or whatever it might have been, um, you know, at conferences, putting on events and the like. And then shortly after our one year anniversary, maybe about a year and a half into the project, um, I actually saw someone post on social media this um, free week-long remote incubator that that organization I mentioned earlier, Turtle Tank, mm-hmm. uh, Collective Coaching Program for Radical Entrepreneurs, was doing. Um, and I was like, okay, well, the price is right. It's free. So <laughs> let yeah, me see what the deal is with this, right? Uh, and it was specifically that... Um, they were trying to do something that was centralizing radicality um, and that it seemed like the participants were overwhelmingly BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, or people of color, and mostly women and femmes, that I was like, low stakes, it's a week, I've never been in any kind of entrepreneurial space in my life mm-hmm. before, but let me just, you know... Uh, these engage. are the folks I would hang out with if I exactly. was. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like in the yeah. entrepreneurial realm, like yeah. these would be my people. So let me just, you know, get a sense. Right. So I did that. Um, and it was generative for me. So then I was a part of that project for six months. So half of oh, last cool. year. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was my foray into, um, even playing with the yeah. language of actually, Liberation Spring, the Freedom School being an enterprise as opposed to just a community organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, you know, that has implications legally, financially on a number of different fronts. And so it was really just um, last spring of 2017 that for the first time, I was like, you know, it's not as if especially as an unapologetic um, anti-capitalist, I'm not trying to romanticize business. Um, That Mm. to me has nothing to do with, you know, that has no interest for me. It's not about, you know, speaking in some hyper-individualistic way about healing your relationship with money or something. Mm -hmm. For me, it was more about um, having devoted over a dozen years professionally to academia as an industry, to activism, which is one of my homes. Um, It was stepping outside of those industries, so to speak, again, very strategically, like I've done within Mm -hmm. academia, to with humility know, I know these people know some things about one money that some activists and organizers sure as all hell might be able to learn about. So Mm -hmm. we don't just continue to starve in the nonprofit industrial complex. So I will, you know, roll up my sleeves and go into some of these spaces again with a bag of salt over my shoulder um, to see what we can learn that could be useful for my people on the ground that are doing revolutionary Mm. work. Mm. Yeah. What does that look like for you? So now, so I'm curious. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, because this is something we've toyed with as well. This this question: yeah. what What does that look like? Um, mm. In and how what what does your enterprise, your business look like? And and mm-hmm. and how are you setting it up so it can be set up in an anti capitalist way? Mm-hmm. You know, some of it might seem very paradoxical, and that mm-hmm. I would want to name. So say, for example, um, if you are doing work that is, you know, in this political climate, um, even with brown people, right, you're subject to more security risks, yeah. um, you yep. know, let alone talking about anti-capitalism, talking about feminism, the doxing, right, and the harassment 
um, of feminism in online spaces. These are all, you know, not cute, right? They're literally deadly issues Mm. for us to really take seriously, particularly as founders of projects where people are sharing data online and personally Mm. identifiable information, whether it's in, you know, an online group, whether it's via Facebook or elsewhere, Um, And so for me, one of the major considerations that I started sitting with at the outset and I'm continuing to sit with on a daily basis is a security culture plan for the project. Um, So really, um, again, not just taking best practices from business people that don't know about the security state or the Mm -hmm. surveillance state because they're so busy being techno-optimists or techno-fetishists just getting off on Elon Musk's last tweet without realizing, (laughs) hey, we could do better than this. You know, y'all might be so privileged that you're not going to be the first to die or get deported. Um, Mm. That's not where we're all coming from. And some of us care so much that we will do that extra work to ensure that the spaces Mm. that we create, whether it's in the language of universal design the disability justice movement or Mm. elsewhere um, is going to be at minimum not a harmful space um, for the most oppressed in our communities, right? Yeah, definitely. That's mm-hmm. that's a, a great way of putting it and a very practical way of putting it. Totally, yep. totally. And so what I mean by that in terms of security culture for one, and here's where the paradox comes in, is uh, getting super legally legit, not mm. allowing any right T to go uncrossed or I to go undotted that could be an invitation for some men's rights activist to yeah. throw to down our website, down. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, it might sound kind of funny, like anti-capitalists with all of like the trademarking and the copywriting and the terms of use and the privacy policy. Again, that might sound a little peculiar at a first glance. And again, for those of us that are either doing work um, of a liberatory nature or with oppressed peoples, um, to me, it's incredibly important for folks to, and especially in areas they're not familiar with, you know, so say, I'll say, I'm a U.S. citizen. I don't have to worry about getting deported. Um, Other loved ones of mine are not. And so I'm Mm going to ensure in an area like any solidarity praxis, right? If my lived experience doesn't personally cover me understanding vulnerabilities, I'm going to do that risk assessment to the best of my ability um, as opposed to having to backtrack after Mm. someone was potentially harmed um, or a cat was let out of the bag, so to speak, right? But, you know, really taking seriously that ounce of prevention, going slowly, thinking things through, um, doing community accountability, so talking with movement elders to ensure that, again, it's not just me as an individual in a vacuum with the pro and con list that I'm looking at on my laptop, um, but I've done the work to be accountable um, in dialogue with the folks and representatives of communities um, to ensure that we're growing responsibly. Mm, mm-hmm. And what are your what are the, what are the income streams look like for for Freedom School? Like where where is that money coming in from? Um, mm-hmm. And if you want to share too, like how it's being used, but only if you want to. Obviously, you don't have to. But just totally. curious, especially for people who are sitting back, going, "This is the kind of work I want to do in the world." And if we're providing that alternative mm-hmm. way of using their degree and their knowledge and their skill set and all the other things, their experience, their life. Um, so yeah, you know. Share as much as you're willing to share, but just if you can paint a picture for us. Absolutely. Uh, 
So for one, so far as the income streams go, um, our project since the very beginning has been 100% donation-based, pay what you can, no one turned away for lack of funds. Um, so that already, you know, if we want to talk about practicing anti-capitalism, um, is pretty astounding in the U.S. Yeah. for anyone to be, you know, again, naming, full disclosure, I'm not independently wealthy. I don't have spousal support or a family supporting me. This is my full-time gig paying my bills. Um, yeah. And it's important to me to let people know that that's possible. Mm, um, so then, that. you know, if you haven't heard it before, you've heard it from me right now, that is viable, right? It people works, have yeah. actually yep. supported our communities, right? And so, mm -hmm. and I'm going to get real clear about some numbers here right now to support folks, again, precisely that might be just trying to understand what this might look like. Um, say, for example, right now, uh, some of the seasonal classes that I teach, so they're 12-week-long group classes. Um, some meet physically face-to-face. -face, some are totally online via conference cool. calling. Um, mm -hmm. My suggested donation is 20 bucks a class. A whole mm. lot of people will spend 20 bucks on one night going to a movie, going out to eat, whatever it might be. Um, so that price point to me does seem accessible, particularly because I make patently clear to folks they're always welcome to come through even if they can't make a donation. Mm. Um, so that right uh, for a 12-week-long class would be 240 bucks for one participant. So that's mm -hmm. right. You need four participants. You've got a grand, a dozen people mm -hmm. in that class, and you're making what you would make as an adjunct right? On mm -hmm. average, teaching. you see <laughs> yep. how easy that just got real quick. So those folks, yep. how many of our loved ones that are right, totally being burnt out as adjuncts, yep. right? Going across yep. how many towns to be lucky, allegedly, as the dominant story is told, to score three adjunct gigs on campus. If you teach three sections with, with a dozen sometimes. people each, yeah. exact, right? Yeah. And y'all, yep. and they have grading to do. I don't have grading yep. to do, right? <laughs> you know, so I'm gonna yeah. right make crystal clear. Say even just from the seasonal classes, right? Mm. Um, right now, for example, I'm teaching a summer class that has three sections, right? And so if I have a dozen people, roughly, which I do in each of those three classes. That more or less is like, right, adjuncting three classes, but the terms are 100% what works it. for me. So I just really want any people that are, you know, sitting with the idea of adjuncting, which is over three-fourths of the academic labor market right now, y'all could be teaching curricula that is culturally competent, that is politically on point. You don't have to fake objectivity if you have a heart and you care about the earth yep. and about other living beings, right? Mm. Um, and in, you don't have to do grading that you don't want to do. You don't have to go through, right, the bureaucratic no meetings, no department. precisely, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that some of those um, forms of red tape ostensibly exist to provide certain safeguards within sure. an allegedly public sphere um, that might not exist in an allegedly private sphere where business people, again, can set terms potentially unethically. Um, mm -hmm. We know that the academy is a corporate entity. We yep. know that education yep. became a business a long time ago in this country. Yep. And we know that those of us that have ethics can be ethical in making money in the realm of enterprise. So I also just mm. want to be really clear about dispelling yeah. those dualisms or binaries that are definitely not serving us and they don't accurately yep. depict reality, right? Mm -mm. 
I love that. And so when I, that's dressed on the income stream, stream that's that is just, with just the classes. That's not one-on-one community independent studies. That's not anything else. But I just hope that makes clear for folks um, who might be right experiencing the kind of excruciating sort of, you know, uh, devastation to their confidence and to their capacity and to their professional mm. growth and abilities um, that that right adjunct hustle does to so many people. Um, that there, there's this great big world out there of people teaching online and offline in community that don't have any of the training or expertise that y'all do, that don't necessarily have any background in teaching or in pedagogy, and for real making bank. Um, and yep. so why would we not want to encourage those markets to invoke the capitalist parlance, mm. those spaces to be infused with educators that know how to educate and that are subject area um, experts, right? Mm. the end I'm done no <laughs> that was so good like I'm sitting here going oh my gosh can everyone who listens to this podcast teach a class because now I'm like this sounds amazing and do you hire actually outside teachers and are, is this how you're growing your school uh so I've dabbled in having a couple of guest instructors come through to begin to get the ball rolling on that front and I'm actually um, in the process of being in conversation with um, someone, a dear, dear colleague of mine from grad school, about the very first um, seasonal class that will be a co-taught pilot. And I'm like still that. kind of, you know, patiently seeing when the time will be ripe to solidify those details legally, financially, in terms mm. of decision making and on all sure. of those fronts. Um, although, frankly, I actually am not quite interested in going there fully yet because I still want to polish a little bit more of the organizational development um, sure. and get some of my curricular development out that I've been dreaming of actually having this kind of space to be able to share um, mm. before jumping into formalizing collaborations. I love that, though. I still think and and that would be that might be a great transition too. is what is your vision for Liberation right. Spring? Where are you headed with it? Because I do think there's a there, you know, there's a ton of potential and, mm-hmm. you know, it's being validated as you know, I saw her class schedule. It's amazing. She has record of all the classes she's previously taught um, and they're all in there. So um, we'll definitely be linking to her website so you can explore that. But um, what is your vision for your business and and where this is headed and, you know, dream big 10 years out. If you want to go, what does it look like? Yeah. A land-based learning center that's entirely Mm. financially accessible that not only has a full cultural production wing. So we're talking a filmmaking Institute, a printing press, um, a maker space, but also a residency space for movement artists and activists to have the time ranging from a weekend to a season to be able to reconnect with the land in a decolonial mm. good way and have the space to allow their brilliance to come to fruition. Um, so also write a space somewhat akin to, so I was a fellow for four years at the East West Center in Honolulu when I was in the mm. PhD program in Hawaii, Um, this incredible research and educational institution that brought scholars and practitioners from every island and nation state in the entire Asia Pacific Rim to live together, to research together and to learn together. Um, I had the experience of participating as a fellow in that incredible, right, global and 
just phenomenally skilled um, and educated community for four years. And mm. even amidst the trappings of the strings attached from the U.S. federal right governmental funding that we have that, of course, you know, censored certain more important questions around, say, climate chaos or, you know, dismantling the U.S. military industrial complex and the like um, that we could get into in an independent space, it was still um, absolutely invaluable for me to be able to know we can create those alternatives, right, that have independent funding so people can come Mm. together that are, right, the most visionary and liberatory thinkers and practitioners from all over the world to be able to do that, right, strategizing, sharing of our stories and the like, um, so that our movements for liberation can be smarter. So yeah, an entirely autonomous land-based learning center is what we're moving towards. And in the interim, um, actually, and again, here's another one of these seeming paradoxes, Um, sharing more robust um, online programming. So recognizing not everyone is going to be able to make it to the land base of doing both simultaneously. Yeah, definitely important. So I wrote down while you were talking there too, alternatives with independent funding. So when I... So it's interesting and I can't wait to share this episode with a past uh, grad school friend, someone who I did amazing work with who is doing postdoc work at a research... um, facility um, in Houston and it's bad. It, it, she's not happy. She's being, being tr- treated poorly and she works with um, women who are passing through like sex trafficking situations and all of that. And so she's like, so I, I did everything, got the PhD, did everything. And now I'm in, and now what my work isn't, isn't even being used in the way it can be used. And, and these facilities are being run in terrible ways. And the game that she has to play is just tiring her out. And we talked, we connected recently, um, as she's debate, like debating leaving that place. And, um, all this being said, she was like, I wish I could just start my own, research like why do i have to go through mm-hmm. this broken oppressive yep. system Precisely. and i was like i've n-, and she goes but i don't want to be broke <laughs> and mm, the nonprofit right. path is right. also which you mentioned right. industrial yep. complex of yep. the nonprofit yep. you know system so when you say independent funding is that right. what you mean where it's like can you have a for-profit and that's called a business, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> right? Right. And, right. and it be sustainable and you employ who you mm-hmm. want to employ mm-hmm. and they can be fairly compensated and then some, yep. and mm-hmm. it can have feminist practices, anti-oppressive, mm-hmm. anti-racist, yep. all that yep. Yep. built yep. in. And so you mm-hmm. might be the first person that I've heard say that out loud. And right. um, it's coming in this, in this other way. I, I, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if you have some thoughts on that, that I would of course mm-hmm. share with her. Um, of so yeah, sure. Tons. And here's the thing is, um, you know, our imagination has been so siloed divide and conquers the name of a military strategy, right? This is, mm-hmm. um, not inert. It's not innocuous. It's incredibly problematic, right? Which is why mm-hmm. some of us have been doing anti-disciplinary work for the longest mm. time to support people unlearning these really problematic um, classification systems and categories in our head that aren't helping us. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
business people make money doing oppressive things all the time. Why couldn't those of us that are supporting our collective liberation be able to pay our bills and then some while we're doing it, right? Um, It's so simple when you realize that it's possible, but it's just, you know, Mm -hmm. say for so many of my loved ones that have burnt out spending their lives within the nonprofit system, um, it's so easy to, I mean, it's not easy, it's deadly, but it is so deft the way that those systems begin to monopolize our imagination. So how burnout Mm. and toxicity and labor exploitation and oppression and sexual harassment can get normalized and naturalized unnecessarily, right? Uh, And so, you know, for example, one of, as someone that, you know, one of my fields is women's studies. When I was in the academy, um, I was relatively active in the National Women's Studies Association. So the Mm. professional association for folks that teach in that field. Um, And specifically, they have a phenomenal program. It's one of their two flagship programs within that association that's called the Women of Color Leadership Project. Uh, And so I both went through that project. I volunteered for that project, um, seriously considered co-leading that project for some time. Um, And its point is to increase the leadership of women of color in the field of women's studies at the international, at the national, and at the local level. So certainly in departments across university campuses, but then for our professional association. And I realized when I was like, all right, this is some of the best of what the academy could offer me if I chose to stay and to devote my life and my career to the academy. So this is for us, the so-called, you know, you could say, although it's somewhat problematic, you know, 1% of the most privileged of women of color that are ever going to make it to the academy. Of course, I'm down to support them, some of my loved Mm. ones that do amazing work in those incredibly toxic spaces, unfortunately. And I care about all of our families. Why Mm. would I limit, right, doing work, building leadership capacity and women of color just to be folks on campus when we Mm. could be creating these alternative institutions that we already know how to run because we've been running them for the Eurocentric heteropatriarchal white boys that have been demonopolizing these institutions since 1492 in this settler colonial country, right? So again, when you frame it that way, it's actually so easy. It almost seems Mm. funny to say out loud. It's like, we've already been doing the thing just for the force of evil. So how about we just pivot towards an invitation to deepen in integrity, right? And so that's exactly the thing is, it's important for me to tell this story in part the way that I am, because then people realize, oh, right, I was a fellow at a bunch of mediocre, oppressive institutions too. I've been at think tanks. I've founded these organizations. I've put on conferences for years. You mean we could just put on the same conferences and create the same think tanks, but we could actually be caring and -hmm. we could actually be supporting the things that are truly meaningful to us instead of going through someone else's charades and acquiescing Mm. to the mediocrity of the status quo. Um, And so that's exactly the kind of pivot that I so sincerely want to support people to consider, knowing that we can leverage the skill sets that we have from these other spaces. If you've been an office manager, you already have management skills. If it was Mm -hmm. at some ridiculous institution, you can create your own institution and then you can support the management of a team, whether it's a collective or a co-op or whatever is a good fit for your project, um, but in a way that isn't slowly eating away or quickly eating away at your soul and your body and your intelligence, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So part of me is like, I would love to hear your advice for someone making that decision right now. And I know we've touched on this like in various ways, but part of me is like, so you had the community around you who was asking for you to create workshops and they were, they were, they knew they were going to pay for it and they were excited and there was ownership that they had over that and they wanted you to lead them and, or, Mm -hmm. or teach them. And, um, are there other ways too, like outside sources that you could be um, going to, to maybe jumpstart that kind of initial um, Mm -hmm. seed money, if we want to use that language or whatever. Um, Because I think that um, like you were saying, that transition is that scary part. And if we can help imagine the possibilities and other ways that you've been getting funding besides just... So you you did one-on-one, it sounds like consulting within Mm -hmm. the community Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I'm just imagining her sitting here going, okay, Mm -hmm. what do I do first, which is often the scariest jump. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally want to support people seeking out um, angel investors or seed Mm. funders. um, And, you know, folks have a social justice or decolonial lens to your work, impact investment, right? Um, And here's, yes, exactly why it's really important for me to name. So we understand our context in sharp relief, Mm mediocre white boys are getting all the funding all the time. (laughs) We just have to ask, right? Instead of hiding. Mm -hmm. So like you said, and you know, again, it's not like it's a matter of individualistic will and volition. Of course, you know, it's like, I don't know if you've seen those bags or those t-shirts that say like, I aspire to have the confidence of a mediocre white man. (laughs) It's cute. It's funny. I'd rather we aspire to be as intelligent as we're capable Mm. of being, you know, Uh, we don't have to be mediocre. We can be great. That's real. (laughs) You know, Yeah. That's um, what we're capable of. That's not just like some individualistic, you know, Protestant work ethic or being hard on yourself. That's mm. honesty, right? But um, yeah, to seek out those investors, to seek out that seed yeah. funding, because just like within academia and other spaces where we're probably accustomed to submitting proposals on the regular, whether it's for a conference to collaborate, whether it's for, you know, an NSF branch or whatever it might be. Um, if you don't get that money, someone might be getting that money mm. that might not even be thinking about trying to benefit anyone else. So for me, mm. it's actually also important to reframe as an ethical responsibility too, mm. if that helps people, not to make someone feel bad if they don't, but if that is supportive, because I know that can be motivating for some folks. Oh, definitely. Yeah. To think about, yeah, who's going to get it if it's not you, what what work yep. or how yep. does... Um, it, like it, then it's like it's a responsibility. It, fe- it can feel like an inner responsibility to get your work out there because only right. you can do what you're mm-hmm. what you were, what we were talking about earlier. Your purpose, mm-hmm. right? Not if, mm-hmm. but how. So maybe it is seed money. Maybe it is starting local workshops. Maybe it is you know just starting the conversation with people around you. And that's kind of how I told her to think about it um, as well. We were, we were in the discussion of it is like, there's kind of a lot of people who want to help in some way, but they don't know how. And if mm-hmm. they could fund something like this that you manage, I think there's people out there that would be willing to do it. And they're not angel mm-hmm. investors <laughs> in mm-hmm. any way, shape or form, but they do want to use the money that they've been making potentially in their business, but they didn't know what their you know way to support community work could look mm-hmm. like because their business wasn't in that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot here. Um, yeah, so I really have enjoyed this conversation. This has been amazing and such a like inner stirring in me, like just of what 
what your work is doing in the world, what people who are realizing that they don't have to stay, have to stay in the institution. And dang, your like connection to the adjunct, like teaching and being like, I'm teaching like amazing classes for more and I'm getting Mm -hmm. compensated and I have the control over it. Like you own it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And if that's not radical, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's pretty right. radical. Not yeah, being alienated so. from your labor, Marxism, mm, anyone, anyone. Like we can, tell, we can go there. We're totally capable yep. of that, right? Absolutely. 100%. Um, so where can people find you? We've definitely brought up Liberation Spring. If you want to tell us about your next courses, where do you hang out online? Uh, what, mm-hmm. what social media accounts are you using currently? Right. Um, folks are welcome to check out liberationspring.com. And um, there are... All of the classes, materials from every class we have ever taught available for free right there. Some potent materials. So please Mm -hmm. do feel free to check it out and to share. Um, Carefully Mm -hmm. curated, pretty awesome stuff. And again, you don't have to sign up for anything. So I sincerely uh, invite folks to check that out. We also are on Facebook at Liberation Spring, LibSpring on Twitter, uh, Liberation Spring on Instagram, Feral Visions on SoundCloud Mm. and YouTube um, and some other podcasting platforms, uh, including Area 941, which is Pacifica or KPFA's podcasting network in the Bay Area in California, um, where we have our decolonial feminist podcast that... Um, is one way to spread some of the provocations mm. and the dialogues to folks that might not be able to do one-on-one work with me or to take a class. Awesome. Awesome. This has been so fun. And thank you so much for sharing you, your heart, your work, uh, your vision for the future. I am just enamored with you. And it's been my pleasure to have you on Academics Mean Business. Thank you oh, so thank much. Thank you so much. And I really want to say I appreciate the work that you do inviting people to imagine alternatives. It is so mm. important right now. And so, yeah, I just really want to affirm the importance of the conversations that you're seeking to support people having. Thank you for that. Oh, I appreciate you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Thank you.